welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into it. God, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for bringing us here together that we as the church can glorify you, honor you, and build each other up, and then go out and be bright lights for you. So Lord, I pray tonight we will give you all the glory that you deserve, and I pray that you will strengthen us, encourage us to continue, bring that glory to our homes, our workplaces, schools, and wherever we go this week. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So what does success look like in your line of work? Um, maybe you're a salesman, and success looks like making that, that big sale, right? You, you've pushed that product that nobody needs, that product with all the bells and whistles, and someone bought the bait, right? Someone bought it, and man, you got that sweet commission check. Or maybe you're a nurse, and um, success looks like making sure your patient is comfortable receiving quality care. Uh, maybe you're a teacher, and success looks like not strangling a student by the end of the day. Um, so success, we all have different ideas of success. And I want you to uh, imagine with me. I want you to do this little thought experiment with me. So imagine there's a isolated community in uh, my neck of the woods where, where my kinfolk are from in, in the wild, wonderful Appalachia area. So imagine there's this completely isolated community, no contact with the outside world, but they have TV stations, they have antenna, and they get all kinds of sports networks, okay? Why, why are we imagining this? For fun, okay? Just, just stick with me, okay? So imagine this isolated community has the NFL network. They could get the MLB network, the NBA, uh, ACC, all access. They, they have all the sports, right? And they watch it all the time. They are obsessed with sports, and they understand how sports work, right? They, they, they watch football, they love reruns of old school football games where you were actually penalized if you weren't trying to give the quarterback a concussion. Um, they, they love baseball and uh, they, they play it, they love basketball, they, they watch it all the time. They love their sports and they just, they understand them. They get sports, they know what success looks like and success in all these sports is at the end of the game, you have a bigger number than the other team, right? In football, you scored more touchdowns than the other team. In basketball, you made more baskets. You have a bigger number than the other team. That's what success looks like. That's what they know, and that just makes sense. But then one day, somehow a new channel creeps over the mountain creeps the signal, gets through the woods. They chop down one tree and now signal gets through and they have a new channel. And this is a channel that is 
literally on all the time at my parents' house. And it's not just on in the background. They're, for some reason, they're watching and even recording this channel. But the channel that sneaks through the mountains, gets through the woods into their antenna, is now the golf network. You guys watch this? You guys watch golf on TV? My parents do, and it's weird. Um, the golf channel. And these people who their whole lives understood what success looks like in sports, you score more points than the other team, the other competitors, now a different sport comes in and it's completely upside down. You're supposed to score less than the other competitors? How does that make sense? If, if you've never had access to golf before, um, that would probably be mind-blowing, right? I'm supposed to get less than that other person. I'm supposed to get fewer points. The, the terms of success are upside down. And this uh, wouldn't make sense. Why would anyone do that? That's not the way we've always done it. it it's, it's just plain weird. But the games are different and the goals are different. And today in our text, Paul is going to show us what success looks like in God's eyes. And God's game, God's goals are upside down compared to the world's game, compared to natural humanity's goals. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter four. We finished up chapter three last week, or last time I spoke, um, and that was a blur to me. Um, I was still getting over that sickness. I, I hadn't eaten in days, and apparently I was really pale up there. Um, but I think it felt good. I don't know. Um, but I, I, I completely don't even remember what we talked about last time. Just kidding. I do. And what we talked about was Paul is writing to this messed up church, like we say every week, right? Paul's writing to this messed up church, and he's addressing specifically their disunity, this messed up church in Corinth, they're, they're holding on to worldly practices, worldly, um, culturally um, practices, and they're, they're doing things like they're clinging on to a favorite teacher because they think that having that teacher will give me more worth, more value, more social standing. So they're doing silly stuff like that, that, that the world does, but Paul is saying that's not what the church does. And Paul knows that this is causing disunity, and he knows that unity in the church is essential. Like we say every week, I feel like um, Jesus over and over again talked about how important it was for the unity of the church. Um, he said, this is how they will know that I came from the Father, for your love for one another, right? Or, or Father, make them one as you and I are one. So Jesus was passionate about the church's unity, and Paul is passionate about the church's unity. And today, he's wrapping up his first main section, his main section that's, that's really focused on unity. He's wrapping that up, and what we're going to see in this chapter, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, that Paul is correcting this church's desire to gauge success according to the world's definitions and not God's definition. So he's calling them out. He's saying, you think this is what success looks like, but hold on. We got to look at it 
as one of my favorite movies, The Prince of Egypt, once said, we have to look at it through heaven's eyes. So um, with that in mind, if you guys are flipped to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to cover the whole chapter, but I'm just going to read the first five verses right here together. So 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. All right, you can have a seat. So what we are going to see in this chapter, what I want to look at are three goals for God's servants to strive for to be successful in his eyes. So three goals that God's servant should strive for to be successful in his eyes. But before we look at those three goals, I want us to notice the first countercultural distinction of Christians. And that is, we are called to be servants of God. Paul is continuing his thought from the last chapter, and he was just showing them how how they shouldn't look to him and Apollos as these competing teams to to give them value. But he should look to they should look to them as gifts given to the church to build up the church in Christ. And here it says in verse one, think of us, think of us, Paul, Apollos, the apostles, pastors, leaders of the church. Think of us this way. And he gives two words, ministers and stewards. So what do these words mean? Well, minister means servant. They are servants. Well, whose servants are they? ministers of Christ. They're not ultimately ministers of the church. They're not ultimately servants of the church. They're not ultimately, ultimately servants of Corinth. They're servants of Christ, and they're ultimately responsible to him alone. And we'll see in verse 5 how that plays out. They're, they're, they're servants of Christ, and they're also stewards. And I remember when I first heard that word steward. I thought people were talking about my buddy in preschool named Stuart. Different words. Steward is a manager. A steward is a top servant who was entrusted with managing the master's finances, properties, and even other servants. So the steward was, was in charge, but he owned nothing. He owned nothing, but he took care of everything. And that's what Paul is saying, Paul, Apollos, pastors, apostles, they were, they were stewarding, just stewards, and they were stewarding the mysteries 
of God. And we already talked about in chapter 2 what the mysteries of God is or are. And this is Paul referring to the gospel. That which was once hidden but now revealed ultimately in Christ. That which was hinted to and foreshadowed in the Old Testament is now fully here and culminated in the person and work of Christ. And again, this, this mystery, some people want to get weird with this. This isn't some like we have to hack some code to understand the Bible. That's not the mystery that Paul is talking about here. It's the glorious truth that has been made known, that has been revealed, that we were once enemies of God. We were born enemies of God, deserving his wrath and justice, but God made a way in Christ. He sent Christ Jesus fully God, fully man, to live perfect life, to die as a substitute on the cross, to raise again. Why? To save sinners. So that whoever puts their faith, gives their life to him, will be united with God, will have eternal life. That's the mystery that Paul's talking about. It's a, it's a, a pretty bad secret, right? If, if we're looking for codes and stuff, it's a bad secret because now we know it, right? But that's not what he meant by mystery. He's saying this was once hidden now it's revealed, and we see that glorious truth. So this is the underlying point of this message, of this passage. Don't idolize Paul or Apollos. Church in Corinth, don't idolize Paul or Apollos. Don't idolize your pastors. Don't idolize personalities. They are just servants. They are just stewards. And what we also see through the New Testament, through all of Scripture, is that anyone who is a born-again believer is called to be a servant, is called to be a steward of this mystery of God, the gospel. We're all called to be servants. We, we see this especially in 1 Peter chapter 4, but this point is, is we, we need to realize this. We're not just, like uh, Pastor Dean talked about this morning, actually, he touched four or five of my points this morning, um, but I like it. But we aren't just called to be saved and then immediately, bam, we're up in heaven, right? We're here for a purpose. We're here for a reason. And that reason is to serve Christ by building up his church and by winning the lost. So, Paul is immediately talking about the leaders of the church. This passage can immediately be applied to leaders of the church, to pastors. Um, we should hold pastors to this standard, but by extension, it's something that we all need to realize. That if I belong to Christ, if I am his, as, as we said last week, if I am his, then I am not my own, Right? I am here to serve the master in his purpose, not my own purpose. So in serving his purpose, let's look at what Paul says are three goals for success. Three measurements of success for a servant of God. So first, a servant of God is successful because he is faithful. Verse 2. Moreover, it, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is the steward's goal to be found faithful. 
And as Paul has been saying throughout the opening chapters of the letter, he wants to be radically centered on the gospel. He wants to be obnoxiously centered on the word of God. Paul said he didn't come to the Corinthians uh, with lofty and beautiful speech. He, get, he came to the Corinthians preaching the offensive, humiliating, countercultural, bloody cross of Christ. And that message is the power of God unto salvation. That is the message that we must build our lives on. That is the message that should be on our lips at all time. Again, uh, Pastor Dean said this morning, uh, I always say it this way, I forgot how he said it, but what you win people with is what you win people to, right? And he said, if you get them there with the circus, well, you're gonna have to keep them there with a circus. Well, if you win them there with the word of God, you have to keep them with the word of God. And again, um, easy's a weird word to say it, but easy's the right word, right? Because all we have to do is be faithful and God does the work. So Paul goes out of his way to win people with the power of the gospel, nothing else. And he wants to be centered on this message alone. And that is how he's going to be found faithful. That's how you and I are going to be found faithful and be successful. And he goes on to say in verses three and four that, that he doesn't care about the, the judgments of others. He doesn't care about the judgments of the world. He doesn't even care about the judgments by himself, of himself. But he cares how the Lord will judge him. And then in verse five, he says, therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Now, if, if you're reading through 1 Corinthians and you read that and then you skip ahead to chapter five, uh, Paul is going to tell the church that their job is to lovingly judge those who are a part of the church. So here he says, don't judge before it's time. So have we finally found it? Have we found the, the contradiction that the internet's been waiting for for years and years in the Bible? Have we found that contradiction? Has Paul just contradicted himself? He said, don't judge, but then in the next chapter he says, judge. No, uh, I think Paul remembers what he wrote in chapter four as he's writing chapter five. He doesn't have ADHD like I do. He doesn't just forget Paul is speaking against those who are judging Paul's ministry's success based on their own or on worldly standards. So don't judge a ministry's success or lack of success based on my own or the world's standards. It's funny, again, Pastor Dean uh, stole my thunder a little bit, but in Sunday school, we were talking a little bit about this text, and I brought up the church growth movement, and Pastor Dean this morning brought up the church growth movement, but uh, the church growth movement, generally, I'm going I'm to speak generally because there's a lot of good churches, a lot of good um, things happening, but generally speaking, like 20, 30 years ago, 
the main measurement of success, especially in the Southern Baptist Convention, was purely numbers. So the first questions when pastors bump into each other at uh, conferences or at dinner or lunch or whatever, when you bumped into each other, the first question wasn't, hey, what book of the Bible are you preaching through at your church? It wasn't, how are you doing spiritually? The question was, how many are you running? How many you got going on a Sunday morning? And again, this is a a generalization, right? I'm, I'm painting with broad strokes, but it was generally true that the main measurement of success was bigger, better, best. Does your church have uh, a four-story slide with, uh, that goes into a McDonald's uh, play area. Um, this, this, this measurement is a man-made, worldly scale. It's not what the Bible gives us as a measurement for success. And again, uh, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, right? I, I said that to the youth. I was like, that, I feel like that's a really old, like, old school saying that we need to use more, but all the youth just looked at me. God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. He used even uh, the church growth movement, but a lot of what was built during that movement was, as chapter three showed, was built on hay and wood and straw. Well-intentioned, but eternally underwhelming. And instead of measuring a church, a pastor, a member by these worldly measurements, we should look to their faithfulness. It's not easy to measure faithfulness. It takes actually a long, long time to measure faithfulness, but it is eternally impactful. And faithfulness to the word and to the message, that is the servant's goal. That is what success looks like. With this as the measure, both Preacher Ezra in the Old Testament and Preacher Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Both are successful because they were faithful. Ezra was faithful to the Lord. Ezra was faithful to the word and sin was confessed and revival spread throughout God's people. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah were faithful to the Lord. They were faithful to the word and no one listened. They were preaching to a stubborn generation, right? Was Ezra more successful than Ezekiel? According to the church growth movement, yes. According to some measures of success, you know, Ezekiel just, you'd be a good youth pastor. You'd be a good children's guy. But don't take the front seat, you know? We, We need someone who could get more numbers. Maybe you're not really called to be the pastor of a church, But no, Ezra wasn't more successful. These prophets were all faithful to the Lord, faithful to the word, and let him do the work. So Christian, are you discouraged in your faith? Do you feel like you're not doing enough for the kingdom of God? You feel like you're working all you can, you're trying your hardest, but you don't see any results? You don't see God working in your life like he's working in someone else's life. Well, don't compare yourself. Don't judge before the time. You just need to remain faithful. Remain faithful in your prayers. Remain faithful in aligning your life with 
the word of God. Remain faithful in loving your neighbors and remain faithful in sharing Christ's message. And in this, in your faithfulness, you will be successful. You will see fruits of that. You might not see them in this life even, but in eternity, the Lord will reward you and show you what he has done through that. Second, we see that a servant of God is successful because he is humble. This is a a fun little section, verses six through 13. But Paul uses sarcasm, and he gets really sarcastic, really ironic, to cut to the Corinthians' heart issue. And the issue is that they are arrogant. They are proud. Their leaders are arrogant and are puffed up. And they're questioning Paul and his authority and because he doesn't appear to be as successful as him. Paul, you're a boring preacher. You preached so long that a man fell asleep, fell out of a window, and died. That's how boring you are, Paul. I think I'm a little bit better than you. That's what they were saying. I think I'm a little bit more successful, Paul. But Paul attacks their arrogance. Everyone take a look at verse seven. He first attacks them by showing that whatever they have isn't of them, it's a gift. Anything good they have is a gift. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou did not receive. Now, if thou did receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? You're boasting in these things that you didn't even work for. You didn't even make by yourself. They were given to you. How does that make sense? Well, Paul doesn't start, stop there. He keeps on going. Verses eight through 13, he goes on to say, You guys view yourself as kings and rulers? Man, good for you. Us lowly apostles, we are last among men. You guys are living the good life? Wow, that's awesome. Us poor, silly little apostles, we're being led to our death. You're wise and prestigious? Must be nice. We're looked at at as fools in the world's eyes. You're strong, we're weak. You're honored, we are despised. And Paul is using this irony to show how silly the church's mentality is, how foolish they are being, how arrogant they are. They're trying to be powerful and successful by worldly standards, and they're saying, look at me, look at how great I am. But their faithful leaders, Paul, Apollos, the apostles, are being despised and mocked. Even even saying that they are garbage and the scum of the earth is what the world is saying about them. But which of these two groups, the Corinthians or the apostles, which of these two groups look more like Jesus? John 15, 20, Jesus says, remember what I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If you follow Jesus, don't be surprised if you're treated like Jesus. And he was mocked, beaten, rejected, and crucified. So don't let pride creep into your life and lie to you and say that you deserve more. There is a demonic movement that's spreading all over the world that is sending people to hell in the name of Christianity called the prosperity gospel. We've probably talked about it before. It has different forms, different flavors, different shapes and sizes. We can probably think of a famous preacher or two who teaches the prosperity gospel, but ultimately it's rooted in the pride that these Corinthians were being tempted by. Ultimately, it's rooted, you know, God just wants me to be happy, healthy, and wealthy, right? I deserve it. I deserve to be honored by the world. I deserve to have things that make me comfortable. I deserve to be looked at as a king or a queen. And this is pride. This is prideful. And it's destructive for souls. And instead of this pride, we are called to be humble. C.S. Lewis once wrote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's not humility. We, we, we kind of have this false view of humility, right? Like uh, the, the best way to show that I'm humble is if I'm like super self-deprecating, you know? Oh, I'm, I'm the worst. I'm, you know, not good for anything, um, blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, that's my idea of being humble. That's not what it is. It's actually just thinking of yourself less. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. And everyone should look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. As servants of Christ, we are successful when we are faithful and we are successful when we are humble. When we think less about ourselves and think more about others and their needs. When we stop thinking that we are God's gift to the world, then God can start using us as God's gift to the world. Building others up and pointing them to Christ. And then third, we see that a servant of God is successful because he is loving. Look at verse 14. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Paul isn't trying to bully this church. He's not trying to be a Debbie Downer for this whole letter. And this is super important to remember for next chapter as we get into that but he's writing these hard things because he loves these people if a child starts getting too close starts playing too close to a busy street and won't listen to warnings a loving parent will have to discipline this child right because the parents like to be mean and don't want the child to have fun? No. But because the parents love and care for the child, because the parents are concerned for her safety, therefore, I'm going to show you this love and discipline you, right? 
Well, Paul is concerned for these church members' souls. He loves them and doesn't want them to fall victim to the enemy. So sometimes that means he has to step in and lovingly discipline them, warning them of their pride that will lead to death. And successful servants of God are measured by their faithfulness, measured by their humility, and measured by their love. Do they love enough to have these hard conversations? Hard conversations that are done in, as the end of verse 21 says, done in love and in the spirit of meekness. Do our actions show that we love those around us? The friend or the neighbor who doesn't know Christ, they need to hear the tough truth of the gospel, that they are an enemy of God, and if they die, they will be separated from him for an eternity, suffering for the sins that they've committed against him, but God has made a way for them to come, for them to be forgiven, for them to have true and eternal life. Do we love the family member who doesn't prioritize Christ's church, who needs to be gently guided back? A successful servant is faithful, humble, loves enough to be all about Christ and everything that they do because they know that he is worth it and he alone is worth it. The end of verse five says, the successful servant will have the praise of God. He will reward us with a crown. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we will experience the immeasurable riches of joy that our great God will bestow upon us forever as we're in his presence. He is worth it. So live your life for this kind of eternal success. Look at it through his eyes, not the world's eyes. And I'll end with a question to reflect on if Barry and Karen want to come up. So how do you define success in life? We might know the right answer. I think all of us know how to answer that in a Sunday school class. But do our actions, do our thoughts reflect that answer? The world will tell us, a lot of our actions show us that a successful life is working hard for 60 years so that we can live as comfortably as possible and do whatever we want. Or success in life means to work our way up and build honor and respect from those around me. But one day, we're going to stand before Christ. One day, we're gonna stand before the holy judge And it will be clear what is worth living for. Like the poem says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Are we living for that reward? Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events and ministries, 
please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.